When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Matthew C. McWilliams. He is the Global Political Opinion Lead of the Foundation International Communications Hub, Comms Hub, a newly established organization located in Spain and dedicated to the furtherance of civil society and democracy around the world. He's a political science scientist. He earned his PhD in political science from the University of Massachusetts, where he was a visiting research associate. And through surveys and focus groups, he has examined the roots of democratic deconsolidation and rise of illiberal politics in the United States and countries across Europe and Asia. And we will be getting into this. He has conducted quantitative and qualitative research exploring this question in over 25 countries, including many in Europe, and in the United States. He is also the author of On Fascism, 12 Lessons from American History. Welcome, Matthew, to America and Beyond. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to meet you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. As am I. And why don't we start just maybe on the methodological plane, just to kind of familiarize, sort of set set some parameters for what we are talking about. In the appendix, the first appendix of on fascism, uh, it's called measuring commitment to democracy, emphasis on measuring. So what what's what's that about basically? I love that you read the appendices first. <laughs> You're not, after not my first, heart here, but I came back to them. <laughs> well, I I thought it was very important to include it, though my editor wasn't so sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and, what do editors know? Yeah, I know they're just editors. They're just um, editors. How do we, or how does political science, or how do people measure authoritarianism? It can't be a question that is, are you an authoritarian or not? Because you're not going, it's a tautological question. So there have been questions that have been developed over time. And actually, uh, in terms of authoritarianism, it started with the Frankfurt School in Germany, uh, in the late 1920s into the early 30s, where they were measuring uh, what came to be known as authoritarianism. Yeah, and, and Eric Fromm came from that, right, as a, importantly it, because of the book that he went on to write. Yeah, the book uh, Escape from Freedom, which was the really the seminal work on political psychology. And Eric Fromm came out of that. And actually, yeah. it was his study uh, that... Uh, formed the grist for a lot of that. So out of this has come over time and developed over time uh, four key questions uh, that we use to uh, determine if someone uh, is more likely to be an authoritarian or not. And that is actually is expanded now finally to eight questions. There was just some excellent work done. So what's an exa- yeah, what's an example? Just We don't have to do them all, but what's a good example of a, of, of a question? Well, it, they have nothing to do with what you would consider to be authoritarianism. They're child-rearing questions. So okay. a good example is which of these qualities is more important for a child to have? This is what's asked on a, a poll. Respect mm-hmm. for elders or independence? Respect for elders would be the authoritarian answer. Yeah, independence. Uh, yeah, yeah. Woo-hoo. Which uh, is more important for a child to have, self-reliance or obedience? Obedience would be the authoritarian answer. And the thing that's so great about these questions, there are now eight of them. You can use the short uh, 
uh, a list of four. Yeah, What's a, I took the I took the test, and uh, oh, where'd you come out? Well, first you, as did you. You write uh, that not everyone scores a one on the scale behaves like an authoritarian. By the right. way, I we're talking about you scored a. 0.05. So which question did you kind of go the other way on? Uh, I am, uh, and it depends. Uh, when I first took it, I was 0.75, but now I've okay. changed a little bit. Um, well, how did you get elders. to the 0.75? Yeah. Yeah. Respect for elders. And the hard one, which these qualities is more important, being considered for being well-behaved. Uh, I chose well-behaved because I had kids at that point. They were driving me nuts. Yeah. Uh, so well, then I did the same thing. So there you go. I found that a go. difficult t toggle, actually, yeah. because I, you know, I their preferences. It's not as if either one is, you know, obviously bad. Yeah, and and what's key about this is when you put this onto a scale and you put, you know, a thousand, people and you take the people who come out as authoritarian ones or leaning towards authoritarianism, point seven five. And you say they should exhibit certain behaviors, like they should like strong leaders. Uh, they should uh, uh, be hostile sexists. They should be um, oh, lean more towards othering. You know, be find that acceptable. Yes, people who are high in the score exhibit authoritarian behaviors. So the questions are predictive of authoritarian behavior, but they're not deterministic. Right. Actually, I think I need to correct something because I, I I think I only got one on the authoritarian. Oh, you're a point two five then. You're yeah, you're point two five. It was the last very one. Very unlikely I think. to have yeah. any authoritarian attitudes. <laughs> well, anything having to do with curiosity or independence, I'm kind of a sucker for. Yeah. And you know, so it's that that those those weren't difficult. But so that kind of puts things in 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 focus and um you cover some of this ground in the, in the book on fascism, but uh, before we get to that, I think it'd be interesting to discuss the most recent you know findings that you present. And you sent me a paper called "Is Democracy Destroying Itself?" from the German Marshall Fund. These were based on uh, recent research that uh, survey research that you've done. The quote itself comes from. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president of the United States. And uh, he had, as you say, grave doubts about the durability of American democracy, which I think is worth mentioning just because people shouldn't be under the impression that all of a sudden, you know, we have questions about the durability <laughs> of American democracy. This, right? This is, this is. Everyone's it, it, had questions. <laughs> all the, the founders. founders had questions. <laughs> the Federalist Papers are full of concerns about, you know, majority factions destroying uh, Dork ben Madison, Franklin, right? A Republican, or, if we can keep it, or if the, you can keep it, I yes. think. Yes, and demagogues yeah. were yeah. central. I think they were convinced that they would be demagogues. And so how do we deal with that? We have checks and balances. So let's just clear that up, right? We're not yeah. talking about <laughs> fresh fresh ground. Um, yeah, not not at all. I mean, this, this is a an ongoing uh, concern. And John Quincy Adams, 1814, wrote, uh, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. A very, ouch. you know, very yeah. positive statement about democracy. Yeah, right. And that's but that the, was from observation. Yeah. Well, and he was a diplomat and he, he spent time in Russia and he was the son of the second uh, president, in fact. Right, right. So he yeah. knew what he was talking about. He sure did. And he watched his uh, uh, his father and the Federalists uh, launch the, the Sedition Act of 1798 and try to clamp down on uh, the free press. So he'd seen yes. where democracy could go. Yep. And in the survey now that we're talking about, recent survey, uh, so one basic finding is that just 41% of Americans 18 years of age and older today are consistent supporters of democracy. The rest, a 59% majority, are inconsistent supporters of democracy. And then you zoom in on where I think uh, it might be profitable to go, that only one in four Americans between 18 and 39 years old, so from the start of voting age up to 39, is a consistent supporter of democracy, a full 16 percentage points below the mean support score for all citizens 
of voting age. So we have this sort of youth problem, and maybe we can explore that in some depth. What is going on there? How does that break down? Yeah, I mean, the same way we can measure authoritarianism, we can measure consistent support for democracy, and there are five questions to use. You know, they're used by different people around the world. Uh, the World Values Survey includes three of them on their global surveys every five years. And so I've taken the five questions and we applied them to the United States through grant from the Freudenberg Foundation and German Marshall Fund, mm -hmm. uh, but also all across Europe. And what we found consistently is that young people, 18 to 29 and also uh, uh, 30 to 39, are much less likely to strongly, consistently support democracy than uh, older folks, septuagenarians in the United States, 65% of them are consistent supporters of democracy. And what are you? So, what is the test of it? So is it is it a belief in the voting process? Is that no? There, there are five questions. One is very simple: uh, uh, Is democracy a preferable form of government, or not? Or are there another form of government that you would think would work better? Mm -hmm. uh, another one is a strong leader question. Uh, do you agree or disagree that it's important to have it's in, that we need to have a strong leader who uh, doesn't pay attention? This is important to Congress or the courts and gets things done. So mm -hmm. if you're for the strong leader, you're not a consistent supporter of democracy. Um, and so in the United States, 41 percent strong supporters of democracy. Uh, but when we look at young people, it's just, you know, 25 percent uh, average. Um, and that's very concerning because as you and I move on to the, our great reward. Uh, yes, I'll be getting my first uh, Social Security <laughs> check in, uh, in March as a as a full, you know, full fledged, you know, recipient. You. Yes, it's a good. Uh, we like that. Um, but uh, yes, uh, different as generation. That, as we age we're replaced by younger people who don't have such uh, an affinity or an affiliation with democracy, which opens the door larger. Uh, it, it makes the it makes the possibility of a demagogue uh, more likely. Yes. We, yes. I think we yeah, can we see, see that. This not just in the United States, yeah. but it is across Europe. In Germany, the number is 38% average. Mm -hmm. And with young people, it's 19%, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you see groups like the Alternative for Deutschland, which is a, a neo-Nazi party, yeah. uh, growing so quickly in uh, support in Germany. Well, is there a kind of uber explanation that you have since we're dealing with societies that uh, are on both sides of the Atlantic uh, that you know can help us understand, in particular, the youth factor yeah in the united states we have the quantitative which we've talked about we also have qualitative data uh which means we've talked to young people about focus it focus groups yeah yeah focus groups qualitative boards individual in uh interviews and the problem in the united states is uh it it, it has several uh, uh parts to it but the main problem is democracy has been flattened to the idea of democracy is voting. That's it. You vote, you participate, that's it. As opposed to de Tocqueville's civic participation involvement. And the problem with the vote is uh, young people feel, and, and I think many others do, that their vote isn't listened to, voting is a sham, and the system is not responsive to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so their support of institutions is falling uh, they think that democracy is just about voting, and they don't link democracy directly to freedom, mm. uh, which is very. Uh, and I, here I got some quotes. I'll read them to you, just from these focus groups. Like, yeah, this so, is with African American in, men. In, in okay, in America, in America, democracy is. We ask democracy is fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Democracy is lies, more lies, a broken system that doesn't work doesn't represent everyone, needs to be fixed. The system was just not built for us. That's African-American men, uh, uh, white women. Democracy is government. 
I was thinking on the lines of the whole point of government, I thought was to make sure the country runs smoothly, but I don't necessarily care if it's democratic. I want to have the country run smoothly. So I mean, just kind are... of results, results oriented. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, black women, they tell us we have these rights like voting, but our vote doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Um, so it's been flattened to voting. And also the other part of it is they don't see the system uh, delivering results they want. Uh, why can't we fix climate change? Uh, why has uh, the Supreme Court took away our right to choose? Why? Most people want it. Uh, guns, when there are no gun controls, most people want it. Democracy is not delivering for us. And then so the final thing is, you know, we can all buy or do just about anything we want online with our little phone, right? And we get it immediately. I ordered... Uh, some treats for my cats <laughs> from Amazon that came four hours later. Yes, it's incredible. And so we're used to this things happening quickly, and democracy is the exact opposite of that. Democracy yes. is slow. Well, it's, um, so it doesn't it, sound like, to be a, a bit of a devil's advocate, it does not sound like a necessarily irrational response to say that the democracy is not working because on the one hand, as you point out, it's so efficient when you're in the consumer marketplace, and on the other uh, dimension, it's really not, and not only not efficient, but not delivering really satisfactory results of any kind. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't yeah. people react that way? Yeah, because but government's not a market, and government's not a corporation. Government is us trying to to resolve political differences in a way that isn't uh, that isn't violent. <laughs> and so yeah. it's going to take time. Well, how about money, though? What about is there is that something that comes up in focus yeah. groups, example, that there's a kind of pervasive and corrupt factor here involving money and big money in politics? Is that play into the cynicism that we see? In the United States, for sure, uh, that plays into it. Um, in Europe, I don't have the qualitative uh, information yet to tell you exactly in Europe what it is. But in the United States, it's certainly that the system uh, has been corrupted uh, by money and that money matters more than people. It does level of education matter in these surveys in terms of the propensity to see democracy as not working? Well, you know, it's really interesting uh, because educational attainment is somewhat predictive, but not, uh, it, it depends on the modeling that you do statistically. Yeah, not as much as you might think. I mean, not as much as you might that, think. You know, Jefferson believed that education was essentially the solution for the good society. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for us, what we need to solve this, we have to make democracy relevant. Uh, but show that linkage between freedom and democracy, that these freedoms we have are hard fought. Well, the uh, freedom, I wanted to get to yeah. that because your your survey underlies that if we talk about freedom, that's a different thing. It's a different value and the respondents to your survey. And I imagine in the focus groups are underscoring a pretty strong belief in what they view as freedom, which of course, as we know, is can be kind of a complicated concept. There are positive and, and negative types of, of freedom. Oh, yeah, they want freedom. But, you know, freedom it gets defined in different ways. Yeah, freedom from by, restraint or freedom yeah, to, to do their own thing. Be able to do, I mean, with some of the people who are low on the uh, consistency of support for democracy scale, right? So they're, mm -hmm. let's say they're in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're white. Uh, and they're male, they say freedom is to do whatever in heck I want, whenever in heck I want. Okay. Uh, whereas... Don't tread go, on me, kind of a... Yeah. And, and if you go... But then there's also the civic responsibility uh, side. There's some who will say freedom is part of... Freedom are rights that I enjoy, and we protect them by working together for them. And then with African-American men, it was really clear... Freedom is just the right to exist, basically yeah. to have laws that protect me from the system. Yeah, get stopped on in an yeah. arbitrary way by the cops right. and that kind of thing. Yeah, freedom is, and that's, and they're scared of losing that freedom. Sure. Uh, well, who yeah, wouldn't be? That's yeah. the, you know, it, 
I think it's interesting just to the economic side. In Europe, there's a lot of work that's been done on democracy uh, and young people not being for democracy, but they go in with big blinders on thinking it's all income. So it's those lower income people who aren't well educated there. We have to teach them about democracy. It's just wrong. Mm. It goes across the scale. Uh, it's starting with a bias when you look at it. It's upper income, middle income, lower income. It's really the difference, uh, a commitment to community, commitment to uh, government and working together. That's yeah. the key. Well, community, let's, we will get into that. I know yeah. that's important. But with freedom, yeah, I mean, I've always thought of freedom as a kind of our Lockean, in America, our sort of Lockean inheritance. I mean, as Jefferson casting it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I know that Locke himself... I think he said property and not happiness, but life, liberty, all that stuff. And so that to me is is sort of in the mainstream of the American experience. And it sounds like that's actually holding up pretty pretty well in some right. in some sense, as opposed well, to the democracy uh, dimension. And, and what people learn, those who get civic education, because obviously civic education is not uh, uh, is not really doesn't happen in many schools at this point. It just doesn't. But the civic it's education- It's not taught as a class? Is that what you're it's saying? It's not taught, uh, or it's just an afterthought. It's secondary. Uh, I see. And in school after school, it's a real problem. But when it is taught, it's all about the plumbing of the Constitution, like the first seven articles, Franklin's part of the Constitution, and less about Madison's part, which was added- uh, uh, after the ratification, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, um, yeah. So, and, and people learn about it and then forget about it. And there's checks and balances, but I don't know what they are. I'm not sure what the Supreme Court does, except they're an anti-majoritarian institution, they would say right now. They wouldn't yeah. use those words, but that would be their thought. I see. Well, that's a little bit frightening, but on the education, but I guess not surprising. So community, uh, I want to come back to, which you describe uh, like freedom is also a value-laden, emotionally-packed term for most inconsistent supporters of democracy. Community is place, family, togetherness, connection, nostalgia, safety, responsibility, and hope all rolled into one. So community is popular, right? Community, and you know what's interesting within the word community is the word unity, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, a community is really important to these younger uh, Americans who are inconsistent supporters of democracy. And they want to participate in it. They want to volunteer in it. They want to help it. They want to work in it. They find it difficult to do, uh, difficult to find on-ramps to get them involved. Uh, but to me, one way we turn the corner on this and help pe people understand how important democracy is, isn't by lecturing to them, it's showing it in action through community service and what that does. And right. that by working together, we create a better uh, society, a better community, a stronger community, a community that can be democratic, where people can talk and have differences and not uh, fight each other. And it seems a bit like a paradox because the lack of connection or interest in democracy might suggest a certain kind of cynicism, which is at odds with a desire uh, for community and for volunteering and taking all those actions. I mean, or how does that paradox get resolved? Well, there's some people, you know, lower on the uh, the democracy scale, there are people who like don't want to be part of it. Uh, it is, I don't care, but it's the people who can be reached uh, who aren't, uh, who are uh, stronger supporters of democracy. They aren't consistent supporters of democracy, but they aren't saying no to all five questions. Those people are the ones who are more likely to care about community. And community can be good or bad in some ways. If it's traditionalism and if it's unity that leads to uniformity, uh, that can be very... Um, that can lead us into an authoritarian path. If it's mm -hmm. unity that's that includes diversity, recognizes that we're a diverse society, and celebrates that, that's 
the path to a more equal uh, right. and just society. So well, you have to be careful about it. But it's the, there are people like we call them four or fives. That means they were inconsistent and supported democracy in four questions or five out of five questions. Right. Like they are not they're not in our in our uh, target mix. And yeah. really, when you look at them, if you do uh, analysis, they're authoritarians. OK, they want order. They want uh, obedience to authority. They want a traditionalism. Uh, and if you aren't within their traditionalism, they want you out of this country, out of power. Uh -oh. uh, and they want nostalgia 1950s uh, communities that uh, no longer exist anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> well, nostalgia is usually a, a desire for a past that never was anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all another we can discuss that topic, but actually, so let's pivot and make this a little bit less abstract and not to put you on the spot, but we have had some uh, election uh, results. We're in the midst of some presidential uh, primaries, two to be precise. On the Republican side, we've seen, you know, Donald Trump uh, for the third time running uh, uh, for president uh, performing well among his base, his core voters. Um, if we can extrapolate, is that in some way a signifier uh, on this authoritarian dimension? Is that what Trump or his followers uh, are embodying? Yeah. First, let's start with this is not normal, what we're seeing. Uh, uh, it well, is normal. always scares me, though, compared to what? I mean, that compared word. Compared to... <laughs> um, uh, it's outside the bounds of the guardrails of democracy. <laughs> that's what. That's what is what the, mean by normal. You mean Trump is or the the MAGA movement or what? Yes, what, the what, MAGA movement. And uh, what has happened is it, it Trump started this in 2015. Mm -hmm. He's activated authoritarianism uh, within the uh, which was a latent. Uh, uh, characteristic within the Republican Party. Yeah, so from latent to activated. Okay. Yeah, and it's there's a whole uh, great book on this called the authoritarian dynamic, and authoritarianism is always there. The question of is is turned on right. or not? Who wrote that is, book? That you, if you're referring to the book, who oh, wrote that Karen book? Stenner. Okay, just to uh, get that authoritarian in. dynamic, brilliant book, and Trump turned that on, and he turned it on through fear. Uh, be afraid, be very afraid. It's the paranoid style of politics that Hofstadter talked about. Yes, I wanted to get into that as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but and after, so he, yes. he, he has turned that on. Mm -hmm. um, and Like a then, light switch almost. Yeah, it's a switch. And I mean, it took him a while to do it, but he turned it on and it's reshaped the Republican Party. Remember in 2020, the Republican Party had no platform. Right. They didn't have a platform. They didn't it was see just a need whatever for a Trump platform. Said. Yeah. Right. Um, they don't have one this time around either. They don't have this time one around. But what they really have is fear, fear mongering, and identification of the other. Mm -hmm. And the other is coming to take us away, to take our rights away, to take our traditions away, to the, you know, I won't use the language he was using because it's just so awful. But uh, well, it's out there. I think, you know, vermin, he's referred to vermin. Vermin, I mean, he's using Hitler uh, language um, and fascist language. So he has stoked this authoritarianism. And the problem is the elites within the Republican Party, which, which means like members of Congress and others, could have said no, could have fought him. Uh, and actually, after Jan 6, they did for two days, but they've totally rolled over at this point and they're you know enablers psychophants followers of trumpism so they're feeding into uh the entire um, right and that's Trump we... chaos mm -hmm. uh, and a lot uh, the hardest thing to see is evangelicals <laughs> here's uh you know you look at at the e Jean carroll uh and um um you know, that he was, he's been, uh, uh, the legal system has said that he uh, raped her. And here you still have. Uh, I don't think it was, I mean, to be technical, I don't think they, I don't think the conclusion was rape, but, but there was a, a different uh, 
term applied. Actually, then. the judge came back and said that's the equivalent of rape. Um, okay, if he did that, I stand corrected. Yeah, says, not in the initial verdict, anyway. Not in the initial, but the when he came back, because uh, okay, so got, let's not get into the weeds on that. But yes, yeah, yeah. Trump has been confronted by the uh, is being confronted by the legal system, and we see this authoritarian uh, way that you describe activated. But well, let me just give you though at least a little bit of a of a counter narrative because I know that this is something you've thought about as well, which is that. Uh, there's a populist wave, and uh, a lot of authors have spoken to this. My friend and uh, author John Judas wrote a book called The Populist Explosion, which was coinciding with Trump's rise initially that got a lot of attention. And I think a lot of people, both political scientists and journalists, have accepted this idea that populism is, in fact, the main dispositional dispositional driver behind the rise of illiberal politics. But you face that squarely, that question in your book on, on fascism, and argue otherwise. Yeah, there are ways to test for populism, too, in surveys. Um, and we've done that. Uh, and what you find is there is some overlap between authoritarians and populists, but not a lot. And one thing with populists... Well, how, do you, how do you test, actually? I wasn't familiar oh, with that. It's a five, six question battery. Like, uh, like uh, what's, a, what's a question? Oh, uh, uh, the questions are, um, they're agree, disagree. Uh, one, for example, is um, when uh, someone gets elected to parliament or Congress, uh, they quickly forget the people who sent them there. Agree, I see. disagree. Uh, mm -hmm. um that the people uh and the leaders are uh the, the leaders are much different than the people in the way they view the world agree disagree there you know six uh question well the whole battery is seven you can do it with five okay but, but, but when you, you do that and you mm -hmm. look you realize that populists are much more likely to support democracy in democratic forms mm -hmm. than authoritarians. Authoritarians aren't. And this is true in the United States. It's true across Europe. So that's, so a, that's a really core distinction. Core distinction. Go to Poland. And we just had the big election in Poland. The PIS, the Law and Justice Party, which is for neither law nor justice, mm. is supported by authoritarians. Mm -hmm. They don't care about democracy. The civic Platform, which stands for democracy, is uh, supported by populists. Same thing in Italy. Uh, populists uh, supported the Five Star Movement. They don't did not support uh, Maloney. Maloney was supported by authoritarians. And in uh, and you see this in country after country. Germany is the same thing. Christian Democratic Party will have populists within it. The Greens definitely have populists in it. They don't have authoritarians. The authoritarians are the neo-Nazi party. Uh, alternative for Deutschland. Well, in America, then, is is Trump supported by authoritarians, but not by populists in these terms? He is more Authoritarians are more likely to support him than populists are. Mm -hmm. In the end, so much of this has gotten washed out just by party ID, too, at this point. Yeah. Um, but if you're a populist, you're much more likely to be supportive of democracy and you know, less likely to be supportive of yeah. Trump. I guess I've always, maybe my understanding of populism is overly informed by our economic history, but I always associate the populace with the movements of the 19th, late 19th century as uh, a reaction to concentration of, of capital in railroads and Democratic Farm Labor Party. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, and the desire yeah, yeah. to to really address that in a very comprehensive and, and substantive way. So I don't always identify today things that are called populism with that kind of populism. I mean, Trump is, well, he's calling for tariffs, which might be sort of populistic, but he's not, you know, that full kind of gamut of populist solutions is not something he's embracing. And when he was president for the first time, he embraced the Republican standard uh, menu of corporate uh, and, and individual tax cuts. Exactly. Not a populist measure. Not a populist place to go. <laughs> Not a Tom Watson populist. Uh, no, you know, more of an oligarch and rich people place. Kind of, yeah, more <laughs> oligarchical. That's a whole yes. other word. So, 
anyway, we don't have to establish, this is not so much about populism, but I just thought it was an important distinction to make. And, and But I think one of the charms of your book now, if we can talk about on fascism, is that you revisit these lessons or you describe these, what you call 12 lessons from American history. Uh, lesson one is about American enlightened authoritarian Lincoln versus Douglas. And we can talk about that, but I actually found myself attached a bit to a lesson two, uh, fomenting fear and the paranoid style. And there we get the historian Richard Hofstetter, who coined this phrase, I guess I, I, I guess he did. I mean, he wrote the essay yeah, yeah, called I, The Paranoid. I think he did, yes. Well, I'm not sure, that, right. The paranoid style, I think that people have tried to describe in, in various ways, but he certainly gave life to it in his essays, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And by my recollection, at that time, he was talking a lot about, you know, there was sort of Goldwater, there was a lot going on on the right wing, the Birchers, and all of that. And he identified that- Well, he was that, going back as far as- uh, The know-nothings. Uh, Anti-Catholic, nativist, yeah. know-nothings, know you name it. He was going way yeah. back into- yeah. uh, Yes, I meant that he was writing when he, I think it was published in the early 60s. And at, at that, there you go. So at that time, that right. might have been a, a kind of a prompt for him. And then he returned to this style in politics, which you obviously think has great currency. Oh, yeah. I think Hofstadter had it. Uh, you know, and he, he said there's sort of like four steps to this paranoid style. And to me, the paranoid style is just activating authoritarianisms and that uh, authoritarians, and that's where it comes together. But mm -hmm. you know, first, uh, the paranoid style politicians conjure another, and so you know, think of Trump coming down the escalator. The first thing he did was start, and that first speech was pointing out others, uh, those you know, dirty immigrants from yeah. wherever. Some of them are uh, what, rapists, criminals, rapists, and, and yeah, some may and, be good people. Yeah, some might be good people. Yeah, his, his, the Trumpian flourish to that. Yeah, so, so, I mean, the second step is that you describe the others different from mainstream Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they're, you just think through what we've seen the last two years, you've seen that a lot. Then the paranoid leader, the third stage, you stoke that there's a hidden conspiracy, the deep state, you name it, all the yes. conspiracies that we've heard. Now it's the Justice Department is conspiring against Trump to hold him accountable with the rule of law. And then finally, well, this and is I want to mention that the local DA in the Fulton County uh, in the Atlanta area is targeted by Trump. This is a black woman for being a racist. So right. he kind of flips these categories. I think he's also saying Joe Biden is is the real fascist in this race. Yeah, he flips everything on its. Well, and then the final stage, which we're in, this mm -hmm. is like the as uh, final Hofstetter does not would say, sound good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's the the fear is manipulated to rationalize actions that violate fundamental values norms laws constitutional protections and that's trump saying i'll be a dictator from day one right well that's trump saying well, on day one on day one uh i'm not going to uh, you know he ignores the constitution he ignores laws um so to take that though beyond trump because i think it's important to understand we talk about sure. the maga movement but you know as somebody who comes from a background in journalism and you know writing you know nonfiction, i want to emphasize uh i've been just kind of amazed by how thoroughly the media uh in the conservative media ecosystem has been co-opted right in this and i don't know whether it's like for fox news it's largely a commercial phenomenon because they simply can make money out of this kind of coverage or whether it's something different. But Trump and MAGA would not really be able to penetrate so deeply, I don't think, if it was their message was not so well amplified by this conservative media ecosystem. Yeah, it's amplified by uh, broadcast, cable, and online. Um, and the ecosystem feeds on it and makes money on it. So uh, they make money uh, spewing falsehoods. And, you know, it goes back to Kellyanne Conway. Uh, the day after Trump was inaugurated and there were discussions of the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Yes. And, you know, he was just making up stuff. I and know. she said, well, we have uh, our facts and there are alternative facts. And yeah. alternative facts are real. I remember Chuck Todd just looking at her saying, 
no alternative facts are lies <laughs> there are no such yeah. thing there are facts <laughs> uh, well that takes us into your lesson three all lies matter the father oh, yes. of hate radio and deep state conspiracy so again this is in the department of how there's really nothing new under the sun so talk to us a little bit about father coughlin well you know it and it goes back to an earlier comment you made which you know when the constitution was formed the founders said they're going to be demagogues out there but we can devise a system yes to try to control that yeah demagogues so first, are internal and the founders just to be clear they were studying all the way back to you know ancient greece and you know they were very aware of what had happened before this exercise in republic formation exactly none of this is new they and they saw it so first they had the senate okay that was supposed to be a bulwark mm -hmm. and second just the scope of the republic i think it's federalist 11 or federalist 10 talks about how the scope of the republic would be a bulwark against uh, demagogues yeah well obviously that has changed well, mass uh, media can help to change and, to, to shrink the country yeah and the first time when it really the country shrank quickly was the uh, uh start of network radio mm -hmm. and father coughlin which was uh, who's when, known as when, the father of hate yeah, radio yeah and when did what was his period in 1926 is when he began the radio league of the little flower and oh, it's good. golden hour there you go. And uh, that sounds Father sweet. Coughlin, yeah, isn't it? And he started out with one uh, radio station uh, and then expanded to a whole network. And he got to the point where in the early 30s, he was reaching 40 million Americans wow. when they're about 140 million. Yeah. So think of 40 million Americans each hour that he was on, I think it was on every uh, weekend for one hour. Well, that's incredible. I mean, the 140 million Americans includes uh, children as well. Right. So we must be talking about one out of every three or even better adults. Right. And when you look at it versus like, take Sean Hannity's radio uh, show, Father Coughlin's like was 10 times the size yes. of his reach. Tucker Carlson, and, when he had a show too, when people, I thought, endlessly gave attention to it. If you looked at the numbers, it, you know, a thimbleful in terms of most Americans are, in fact, are, are watching Netflix or their media diet is not of just, you know, a Sean Hannity or anyone, you know, on the left that you might think of as doing the same thing. Yeah, so that's one difference, right? Father Coughlin was truly a, a mass media figure. Well, and he made money on this also. So, you know, he's a he was a Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. uh, he turned this into a profit-making venture. Uh, uh, he was also an anti-Semite mm -hmm. uh, and uh, became a, a supporter of fascism. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know, depression, right? Uh, and post-depression and was communicating that and founded an organization called the Christian Front, uh, mm -hmm. which became known for beating up Jews and proclaimed themselves Father Coughlin's brown shirts. Mm, nice. um, and yeah. he became a real thorn in the side of FDR. Um, and there was one time, uh, uh, it was right after Kristallnacht in Germany and Austria, mm -hmm. uh, where he went on the radio and blamed the Jews for Kristallnacht. Oh, boy. And the, the the feeling was at that point, or the 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 data was that about twenty two percent of Americans heard Coughlin's broadcast of all Americans mm. heard his broadcast around that time, mm. um, and uh, so he was the father of hate radio, the father of the conspiracy uh, radio um, in nineteen thirty nine. Uh, a new pope was installed, and the new pope basically said, no more Father Coughlin. Uh -huh. uh, and so that's how he disappeared uh, out I, so, of radio. So authoritarians sometimes get taken <laughs> care of by, let's yeah. say, authority, authority figures. Right. That And that's what happened. There was a gatekeeper named Pope Pius Twelfth, and he reigned in Coughlin, uh, and unplugged his uh, megaphone. And I think, you know, because then obviously we were engaged in war and uh, the question was, whose side are you on? Yeah. 
Well, let's, I wanted to do one more uh, lesson seven, the driving out, Chinese persecution, exclusion and massacre. And here our touchstone is our never ending debate about the border, particularly the Southern uh, border now, which which I think it has to be said. I mean, the, the numbers certainly suggest that there are many, many millions of quote unquote in, encounters. Now, I mean, it's a real, issue. So it's activated our politics in a very large way. And you see here, see rev, uh, resonance back to the uh, the Chinese exclusion. Uh, yeah, How is Chinese that relevant? Ex Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. But it's not just, it's it's more- uh, The driving uh, out, I think is your term. Yeah, driving out. But the, the act in Congress was the Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. But but it's even more recent than that. I point you to the other chapter on, on the Japanese internment. Yes, yes. Um, and so there's always another. Uh, uh, and when you target them, uh, they become the people you try to exclude or intern or in some ways- uh, use to build your political movement. And, you know, here's a uh, just a little poll data I pulled. I was working on the Reuters uh, poll that was just uh, came out. It was 5,000 sample in the United States. Um, it was with Ipsos and Reuters. 69% mm -hmm. of Republicans now say illegal immigrants should be arrested and put in detention camps in detention camps while awaiting deportation hearings. Mm. Arrest and, and detention. Yes. While awaiting deportation hearings, that's 11 million people mm -hmm. who would be arrested and put in detention camps. Now, if you go back to 1942, it was only 48% said Japanese Americans should, be, should stay uh, in the internment camps uh and uh not be allowed home this was during a world war <laughs> so, yes so you can see you've got 21 percent more and that is authoritarian activation so we have the the chinese exclusion uh you know japanese internment we all know what happened to irish americans italian americans you know there's always another there's always someone that gets targeted by demagogues to be the other and they use that politically to build power. I think it's also um, important to point out, though, as you do in your, your chapter on the Japanese uh, internment, you write that influential journalists like Walter Lippmann oh, you know, yeah. uh, fed these conspiratorial flames, as you call them. Lippmann warning that, quote, the Pacific coast uh, is in imminent danger of a combined attack from within and without and that the absence of the attack so far, according to Lippmann, was simply a sign that the blow, you know, that will come is well organized and has been held back. So just to remind, I mean, Walter Lippmann was one of the preeminent journalists of his age. I mean, I think most people would describe him as a figure of, you know, enlightenment and, and reason. I mean, he spent much of his time trying to demystify, you know, public opinion. So of all people, which I guess points to a sense, you know, that maybe none of us is completely... Uh, lacking in susceptibility here, and we can think of after nine one one in America, we could think of all of the people that, you know, the polls on being ready to support uh, torture, basically, in order to save the country. Well, and and also, who was president at that time? A Democrat, FDR. At that uh, time, yes. And and who apologized? Who was the first the president who apologized to the Japanese? It was Obama, I think. Was it? No, it was Reagan. Oh, was, was August it August tenth, nineteen eighty-eight? Okay, I might okay. take you on that. Absolutely. And he, uh, uh, and that was it. Was a it? it it's worth watching. A former this. governor of California, it should be yeah. known. Well, and also he had, he had a long history uh, on this. That he, when he was a, an actor, right after the war, he uh, went around. Uh, and there was a ceremony where he um, uh, gave. Uh, I think it was a bronze star to a Japanese American who fought in the for the United States in the Pacific Theater. Oh yes, I think. And, uh... and, and it's just, and he brought that into the uh, August tenth, nineteen eighty eight uh, ceremony, and linked his involvement. I think it was in forty seven to eighty eight, and talked about how 
we have to have a society that is just and where people are equal. And so it's not just, you know, that's the Republican, yes. <laughs> at least in my generation, Ronald Reagan. And he was the one who apologized uh, for what we had done uh, to the Japanese Americans during the war. I thought it was it. It's you can see it. Uh, you just put in YouTube, Ronald Reagan, yeah. you know, Japanese internment. It, it's it brought tears to my eyes just to watch that. Well, the passage of time, of course, is is passage, always well, and, and also a political figure realizing that that was what was required morally. Um, that we needed to recognize the history and apologize for the history. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a fine sentiment, and I mean that sincerely. That yeah. somebody like a president would do that, and it just strikes me of my generation that uh, the coarseness of so much of our politics, which oh. is in some way connected to this, is you know you sort of sound like a little old lady when you talk about these things, but it's dispiriting. It is. It is. I always, my, I always think about my mom who fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. She was a, a woman's army corps captain, one of the highest uh, uh, women uh, serving, was in uh, London during the buzz bombs, first people into Paris after the Nazis left. She always talked about people, snipers shooting at them and the general staff. And I think she would be turning in her grave right now. She is turning in her grave with yeah. this. Um, and we just, we have to get together and uh, remember what this country is about. Uh, that's our challenge uh, that we all face. Yes. Well, I hear you on that. And I think that's a good note for us to uh, conclude as well. I want to thank you for your thoughts and your insights. I want to encourage people to follow Matthew and to read his uh, book on fascism, 12 Lessons from American History, because these lessons are not going to go away and are always, <laughs> it's always good to be reminded of, of, of them. So thanks, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin. You've been listening to America and Beyond on the New Books Network.